0: Welcome everyone to 1001's Best of Jack London. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. The fire and brimstone sermon in Honolulu was only half over when Alice Akana decided to tell everyone present what had been weighing down her soul all these years. And Alice knew everybody and everything. By the time she was done, there were no more secrets in Hawaii. Not too many years ago, There was a great pop song out there called The Harper Valley PTA, sung by Jeannie C. Riley, which told a story that involved a PTA mother who was criticized by the school leaders for wearing her dress a little too short, which then prompted her to liven up the next PTA meeting by reciting the scandal sheet on some of the key people who were running the show. In this great story from Jack London, it's not revenge that motivates Alice Akana to speak up, It's a sermon that causes a sudden rush for penitence. But when she opens up on every secret in town, all hell breaks loose in Hawaii. When Alice Told Her Soul by Jack London. This of Alice Akana is an affair of Hawaii, not of this day, but of days recent enough. When Abel Ayo preached his famous revival in Honolulu and persuaded Alice Akana to tell her soul. But what Alice told concerned itself with the earlier history of the then-surviving generation. For Alice O'Connor was 50 years old, had begun life early, and early and late, lived it spaciously. What she knew went back into the roots and foundations of families, businesses, and plantations. She was the one living repository of accurate information that lawyers sought out, whether the information they required related to land boundaries and land gifts, or to marriages, births, bequests, or scandals. Rarely, because of the tight tongue she kept behind her teeth, did she give them what they asked, and when she did was when only equity was served and no one was hurt. For Alice had lived, from early in her girlhood, a life of flowers and song and wine and dance, and in her later years had herself been mistress of these revels "'by office of mistress of the hula-house. "'In such atmosphere where mandates of God and man "'and caution are inhibited "'and where woozied tongues will wag, "'she acquired her historical knowledge of things "'never otherwise whispered and rarely guessed. "'And her tight tongue had served her well, "'so that, while the old-timers knew she must know, "'none ever heard her gossip of the times "'of Kalakaua's Boathouse.' Nor of the high times of officers of visiting warships, nor of the diplomats and ministers and councils of the countries of the world. So at fifty, loaded with historical dynamite sufficient, if it were ever exploded, to shake the social and commercial life of the islands, still tight of tongue, Alice Akana was mistress of the hula house, manageress of the dancing girls who hulaed for royalty, for luau's feasts, house parties poi suppers, and curious tourists. And at fifty, she was not merely buxom, but short and fat in the Polynesian peasant way, with a constitution and lack of organic weakness that promised incalculable years. But it was at fifty that she strayed, quite by chance of time and curiosity, into Abel Ayo's revival meeting. Now Abel Ayo, in his theology and word wizardry, was as much mixed a personage as Billy Sunday. In his genealogy, he was much more mixed, for he was compounded of one-fourth Portuguese, one-fourth Scotch, one-fourth Hawaiian, and one-fourth Chinese. The Pentecostal fire he flamed forth was hotter and more variegated than could any one of the four races of him alone have flamed forth. For in him were gathered together the canniness and the cunning, the wit and the wisdom the subtlety and the rawness, the passion and the philosophy, the agonizing spirit-groping, and he legs up to the knees in the dung of reality, of the four radically different breeds that contributed to the sum of him. His also was the clever self-deceivement of the entire clever compound. When it came to the word wizardry, he had Billy Sunday, master of slang and argot of one language, skinned by miles, for an able a ah, yo were the five verbs and nouns and adjectives and metaphors of four living languages intermixed and living promiscuously and vitally together, he possessed in these languages a reservoir of expression in which a myriad Billy Sundays could drown of no race, a mongrel par excellence, a heterogeneous scrabble, the genius of the admixture was superlatively able Ayo's. Ah, yos like a chameleon. He titubated and scintillated grandly between the diverse parts of him, stunning by frontal attack and surprising and confounding by flaking sweeps the mental homogeneity of the more simply constituted souls who came into his revival to sit under him and flame to his flaming. Abel Yo believed in himself and his mixedness, as he believed in the mixedness of his weird concept that God looked as much like him as any man, being no mere tribal god, but a world god that must look equally like all races of all the world, even if it led to piebaldness. And the concept worked. Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Hawaiian, Puerto Rican, Russian, English, French, members of all races, knelt without friction, side by side, to his revision of deity. Himself, in his tender youth, an apostate to the Church of England, Abel Ayo had for years suffered the lively sense of being a Judas sinner. Essentially religious, he had forsworn the Lord. Like Judas, therefore, he was. Judas was damned. Wherefore he, Abel Ayo, was damned, and he did not want to be damned. So, quite after the manner of humans, he squirmed and twisted to escape damnation. The day came when he solved his escape. The doctrine that Judas was damned, he concluded, was a misinterpretation of God, who, above all things, stood for justice. Judas had been God's servant, specially selected to perform a particularly nasty job. Therefore Judas, ever faithful, a betrayer only by divine command, was a saint. Ergo he, Abel Ayo, was a saint, by every virtue of his apostasy to a particular sect, and he could have access with clear grace any time to God. This theory became one of the major tenets of his preaching, and was especially efficacious in cleansing the consciences of the backsliders from all other faiths, who else, in the secrecy of their subconscious selves, were being crushed by the weight of the Judas sin. To Abel Yo, God's plan was as clear as if he, Abel Yo, had planned it himself. All would be saved in the end, although some took longer than others, and would win only to back seats. Man's place in the ever-fluxing chaos of the world was definite and preordained, if by no other token, than by denial that there was ever-fluxing chaos. This was a mere bugbear of mankind's addled fancy, and, by stinging audacities of thought and speech, by vivid slang that bit home by sheer set intimacy into his listeners' mental processes. He drove the bugbear from their brains, showed them the loving clarity of God's design, and thereby induced in them spiritual serenity and calm. What chance had Alice Akana, herself pure and homogenous Hawaiian, against his subtle, democratic-tinged, four-race-engendered, slang-munitioned attack? He knew, by contact, almost as much as she about the waywardness of living and sinning, having been a singing boy on the passenger ships between Hawaii and California, and after that bar boy afloat and ashore from the Barbary Coast to Heine's Tavern. In point of fact, he had left his job of number one bar boy at the University Club to embark on his great preachment revival. So, when Alice Akana strayed in to scoff, she remained to pray to Abel Ayo's God, who struck her hard-headed mind as the most sensible God of which she had ever heard. She gave money into Abel Ayo's collection plate, closed up the hula house, and dismissed the hula dancers to more devious ways of earning a livelihood, shed her bright colors and raiments and flower garlands, and bought a Bible. It was a time of religious excitement in the purlieus of Honolulu. The thing was a democratic movement of the people toward God. Place and caste were invited, but never came. The stupid lowly and the humble lowly only went down on its knees at the penitent form, admitted its pathological weight and hurt of sin, eliminated and purged all of its bafflements, and walked forth again upright under the sun, childlike and pure, upborne by Abel Ayo's God's aim around it. In short, Abel Ayo's revival was a clearinghouse for sin and sickness of spirit, wherein sinners were relieved of their burdens and made light and bright and spiritually healthy again. But Alice was not happy. She had not been cleared. She bought and dispersed Bibles, contributed more money to the plate, contraltoed gloriously in all the hymns, but would not tell her soul. In vain, Abel A. wrestled with her. She would not go down on her knees at the penitent form and voice the things of tarnish within her the ill things of good friends of the old days. You cannot serve two masters, Abel Ayo told her. Hell is full of those who have tried. Single of heart and pure of heart must you make your peace with God. Not until you tell your soul to God right out in the meeting will you be ready for redemption. In the meantime, you will suffer the canker of the sin you carry about within you. Scientifically, though he did not know it, and though he continually jeered at science, Abel Ayo was right. Not could she be again as a child and become radiantly clad in God's grace until she had eliminated from her soul by telling all the sophistications that had been hers, including those she shared with others. In the Protestant way, she must bear her soul in public, as in the Catholic way was done in the privacy of the confessional. The result of such bearing would be unity, Tranquility, happiness, cleansing, redemption, and immortal life. Choose, Abel Ayo thundered, loyalty to God or loyalty to man. And Alice could not choose. Too long had she kept her tongue locked with the honor of man. I will tell all my soul about myself, she contended. God knows I am tired of my soul and should like to have it clean and shining once again, as when I was a little girl at Kaniohi. "'But all the corruption of your soul has been with other souls,' was Abel Ayo's invariable reply. "'When you have a burden, lay it down. You cannot bear a burden and be quit of it at the same time.'" "'I will pray to God each day and many times each day,' she urged. "'I will approach God with humility, with sighs and with tears.' I will contribute often to the plate, and I will buy Bibles, Bibles, Bibles without end. And God will not smile upon you, God's mouthpiece retorted, and you will remain weary and heavy laden, for you will not have told all your sin, and not until you've told all will you be rid of any. This rebirth is difficult, Alice sighed. Rebirth is even more difficult than birth. Abel Ayo did anything but comfort her. Not until you become as a little child. If ever I tell my soul, it will be a big telling, she confided. The bigger the reason to tell it then. And so the situation remained at a deadlock, Abel Ayo demanding absolute allegiance to God and Alice Akana flirting on the fringes of paradise. You bet it'll be a big telling if Alice ever begins. The beach combing and disreputable Kamehameha's old timers gleefully told one another over their palm tree gin. In the clubs, the possibility of her telling was of mere moment. The younger generation of men announced that they had applied for front seats at the telling, while many of the older generation of men joked hollowly about the conversion of Alice. Further, "'Alice found herself abruptly popular with friends "'who had forgotten her existence for twenty years. "'One afternoon, as Alice, Bible in hand, "'was taking the electric streetcar at Hotel and Fort, "'Cyrus Hodge, sugar factor and magnet, "'ordered his chauffeur to stop beside her. "'Willy-nilly, in excess of friendliness, "'he had her into his limousine beside him "'and went three-quarters of an hour out of his way, "'and time, personally, to conduct her "'to her destination. "'Good for sore eyes to see you,' he burbled. "'How the years fly. "'You're looking fine. "'The secret of youth is yours.' "'Alice smiled and complimented in return "'in the royal Polynesian way of friendliness. "'My, my,' Cyrus Hodge reminisced. "'I was such a boy in those days.' "'Some boy,' she laughed, acquiescence. "'But knowing no more than the foolishness of a boy "'in those long-ago days.' "'Remember the night your hack driver got drunk and left you?' "'Shh,' he cautioned. "'That Jap driver is a high school graduate and knows more English than either of us. "'Also, I think he's a spy for his government. "'So why should we tell him anything? "'Besides, I was so very young. "'Do you remember?' "'Your cheeks were like the peaches we used to grow "'before the Mediterranean fruit fly got into them,' Alice agreed. "'I don't think you shaved more than once a week then.' You were a pretty boy. Don't you remember the hula we composed in your honor? The sh he hushed her. All that's buried and forgotten. May it remain forgotten. And she was aware that in his eyes was no longer any of the ingeniousness of youth that she remembered. Instead, his eyes were keen and speculative, searching into her for some assurance that she would not resurrect his particular portion of that buried past. Religion is a good thing for us as we get along into middle age, another old friend told her. He was building a magnificent house on Pacific Heights, but had recently married a second time and was even then on his way to the steamer to welcome home his two daughters just graduated from Vassar. We'll return with our story, When Alice Told Her Soul by Jack London, right after these sponsor messages.
1: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? Dot com, And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: And now, back to our story. We need religion in our old age, Alice. It softens, makes us more tolerant and forgiving of the weaknesses of others, especially the weaknesses of, of youth, of, of others when they played high and low and didn't know what they were doing. He waited anxiously. Yes, she said, we're all born to sin, and it is hard to grow out of sin. But I grow, I grow. Don't forget, Alice, in those other days, I always played square. You and I never had a falling out. Not even the night you gave that luau when you were twenty-one and insisted on breaking the glassware after every toast "'But of course you paid for it.' "'Handsomely,' he asserted, almost pleadingly. "'I replaced more than double the quantity with what you paid me, "'so that at the next luau I catered one hundred and twenty plates "'without having to rent or borrow a dish or glass. "'Lord Mainweather gave that luau. You remember him?' "'I was pig-sticking with him at Mana,' the other nodded. "'We were at a two-weeks house-party there. "'But say, Alice, as you know,' I think this religion stuff is all right and better than all right but don't let it carry you off your feet and don't get to telling your soul on me what would my daughters think of that broken glassware I always did have an aloha for you Alice a member of the senate fat and bald headed assured her and another a lawyer and a grandfather we were always friends Alice and remember any legal advice or handling of business you may require, I'll do for you gladly, and without fees, for the sake of our old-time friendship. Came a banker to her late Christmas Eve, with formidable legal-looking envelopes in his hand, which he presented to her. Quite by chance, he explained, when my people were looking up land records in Iapio Valley, I found a mortgage of 2000 on your holdings there. That rice land leased to Achin. "'and my mind drifted back to the past "'when we were all young together, "'and wild, a bit wild to be sure, "'and my heart warmed with the memory of you, "'and so, just as an aloha, "'here's the whole thing cleared off for you.' "'Nor was Alice forgotten by her own people. "'Her house became a mecca for native men and women, "'usually performing pilgrimage privily after darkness fell, "'with presents always in their hands. "'Squid fresh from the reef, "'opihis and lemu,' baskets of alligator pears, roasting corn of the earliest from windward cahu, mangoes and star apples, taro pink and royal of the finest selection, sucking pigs, banana poi, breadfruit, and crabs caught the very day from Pearl Harbor. Mary Mandana, wife of the Portuguese consul, remembered her with a $5 box of candy and a mandarin coat that would have fetched three quarters of a hundred dollars at a fire sale. And Elvira Miyahara. Makaina Yinwap, the wife of Yinwap, the wealthy Chinese importer, brought personally to Alice two entire bolts of pina cloth from the Philippines and a dozen pairs of silk stockings. The time passed and Abel Ayo struggled with Alice for a properly penitent heart and Alice struggled with herself for her soul while half of Honolulu wickedly or apprehensively hung on the outcome. Carnival week was over. Polo and the races had come and gone and the celebration of 4th of July was ripening ere Abel Ayo beat down by brutal psychology the citadel of her reluctance. It was then that he gave his famous exhortation which might be summed up as Abel Ayo's definition of eternity. Of course, like Billy Sunday on certain occasions, Abel Ayo had cribbed the definition but no one in the islands knew it and his rating as a revivalist uprose 100%. So successful was his preaching that night that he reconverted many of his converts who fell and moaned about the penitent form and crowded for room amongst scores of new converts burnt by the Pentecostal fire, including half a company of Negro soldiers from the garrisoned 25th Infantry, a dozen troopers from the 4th Cavalry on its way to the Philippines, as many drunken man of wars men, diverse ladies from Iwilei, and half the riff raft from the beach. Abel Ayo, subtly sympathetic himself by virtue of his racial admixture, knowing human nature like a book, and Alice Akana even more so, knew just what he was doing when he arose that memorable night and exposited God, Hell, and Eternity in terms of Alice Akana's comprehension. For, quite by chance, he had discovered her cardinal weakness— First of all, like all Polynesians, an ardent lover of nature, he found that earthquake and volcanic eruptions were the things of which Alice lived in terror. She had been, in the past, on the big island, through cataclysms that had slackened grass houses down upon her while she slept, and she had beheld Madame Pele, the fire of the volcano goddess, fling red-fluxing lava down the long slopes of Mauna Loa, destroying her fish ponds on the sea brim, and licking up droves of beef-cattle villages and humans on her fiery way. The night before, a slight earthquake had shaken Honolulu and given Alice Akana insomnia, and the morning papers had stated that Mauna Kea had broken into eruption while the lava was rising rapidly in the great pit of Kilauea. So at the meeting, her mind vexed between the terrors of this world and the delights of the eternal world to come. Alice sat down in the front seat, in a very definite state of the jumps. And Abel Ayo arose and put his finger on the sorest part of her soul, sketching the nature of God in the stereotyped way, but making the stereotyped alive again with his gift of tongues in Pidgin English and Pidgin Hawaiian. Abel Ayo described the day when the Lord, even his infinite patience at an end, would tell Peter to close his day book and ledgers command Gabriel to summon all souls to judgment and cry out with a voice of thunder, Walikaheo! This anthropomorphic deity of Abel Ayo thundering the modern Hawaiian English slang of Walakaheo at the end of the world is a fair sample of the revivalist speech tools of discourse. Walakaheo means literally, hot iron. It was coined in the Honolulu ironworks by the hundreds of Hawaiian men there employed, who meant by it to hustle, get a move on, the iron being hot, meaning that the time had come to strike. And then he began his sermon. And the Lord cried, And the day of judgment began, and was over wiki wiki, just like that. For Peter was a better bookkeeper than any on the Waterhouse Trust Company Limited, and further, Peter's books were true. Swiftly, Abel Ayo divided the sheep from the goats and hastened the latter down into hell. And now, he demanded, perforce his language on these pages being properly English, What is hell like? Oh, my friends, let me describe to you in a little way what I have seen with my own eyes on earth of the possibilities of hell. I was a young man, a boy, and I was at Hilo morning began with earthquakes throughout the day the mighty land continued to shake and tremble till strong men became seasick and women clung to trees to escape falling and cattle were thrown down off their feet i beheld myself a young calf so thrown a night of terror indescribable followed the land was in motion like a canoe in a cone of gale There was an infant crushed to death by its fond mother stepping upon it whilst fleeing her falling house. The heavens were on fire above us. We read our Bibles by the light of the heavens, and the print was fine, even for young eyes. Those missionary Bibles were always too small of print. Forty miles away from us, the heart of hell burst from the lofty mountains and gushed red blood of fire-melted rock toward the sea but the heavens in vast conflagration and the earth undulating beneath our feet was a scene too awful and too majestic to be enjoyed. We could think only of the thin bubble skin of earth between us and the everlasting lake of fire and brimstone, and of God to whom we prayed to save us. There were earnest and devout souls who there and then promised their pastors to give not their shaved tithes, but five-tenths of their all to the church if only the Lord would let them live to contribute. Oh, my friends, God saved us. But first he showed us a foretaste of that hell that will yawn for us on the last day, when he cries, Walaka hail, in a voice of thunder. When the iron is hot, think of it, when the iron is hot for sinners. By the third day, things being much quieter, my friend the preacher and I being calm in the hand of God, journeying up Mauna Loa and gazed into the awful pit of Kilauea. We gazed down into the fathomless abyss, to the lake of fire far below, roaring and dashing its fiery spray into billows and fountaining hundreds of feet into the air like Fourth of July fireworks you have all seen. And all the while we were suffocating and made dizzy by the immense volumes of smoke and brimstone ascending. And I say unto you, no pious person could gaze down upon that scene without recognizing fully the Bible picture of the pit of hell. Believe me, the writers of the New Testament had nothing on us. As for me, my eyes were fixed upon the exhibition before me, and I stood mute and trembling under a sense never before so fully realized of the power, the majesty, and the terror of the Almighty God." The resources of his wrath, and the untold horrors of the finally impenitent who do not tell their souls and make peace with the Creator. But oh, my friends, think you our guides, our native attendants, deep sunk in heathenism, were affected by such a scene? No! The devil's hand was upon them. Utterly regardless and unimpressed, they were only careful about their supper, chatted about their raw fish and stretched themselves upon their mats to sleep. Children of the devil they were, insensible to the beauties, the sublimities, and the awful terror of God's works. But you are not heathen I now address. What is a heathen? He is one who betrays a stupid insensibility to every elevated idea and to every elevated emotion. If you wish to awaken his attention, do not bid him to look down into the pit of hell, that present him with a calabash of poi, a raw fish, or invite him to some low, groveling, and sensuous sport. Oh, my friends, how lost are they to all that elevates the immortal soul! But the preacher and I, sad and sick at heart for them, gaze down into hell. Oh, my friends, it was hell, the hell of the scriptures! the hell of eternal torment for the undeserving. Alice Akana was in ecstasy or hysteria of terror. She was mumbling incoherently. Oh, Lord, I will give nine-tenths of my all. I will give all. I will give even the two bolts of pina cloth, the mandarin coat, and the entire dozen silk stockings. By the time she could lend ear again, Abel Ayo was launching out on his famous definition of eternity. Eternity is a long time, my friends. God lives, and therefore, God lives inside eternity, and God is very old. The fires of hell are as old and everlasting as God. How else could there be everlasting torment for those sinners cast down by God into the pit on the last day to burn forever and forever through all eternity? Oh, my friends, your minds are small, too small to grasp Eternity. Yet it is given to me by God's grace to convey to you an understanding of a tiny bit of eternity. The grains of sand on the beach of Waikiki are as many as the stars and more. No man may count them. Did he have a million lives in which to count them, he would have to ask for more time. Now let us consider a little dinky old miner bird with one broken wing that cannot fly. At Waikiki, the minor bird that cannot fly, takes one grain of sand in its beak and hops, hops, all day long and for many days, all the day, to Pearl Harbor and drops that one grain of sand into the harbor. Then it hops, hops, all day and for many days, all the way back to Waikiki for another grain of sand. And again it hops, hops, all the way back to Pearl Harbor. And it continues to do this through the years and centuries and the thousands and thousands of centuries until at last there remains not one grain of sand at Waikiki and Pearl Harbor is filled up with land and growing coconuts and pineapples. And then, oh, my friends, and even then, even then, it would still not be sunrise in hell. Here, at the smashing impact of so abrupt a climax, unable to withstand the sheer simplicity and objectivity of such artful measurement of a trifle of eternity, Alice Akana's mind broke down and blew up. She uprose, reeled blindly, and stumbled to her knees at the penitent form. Abel Yo had not finished his preaching, but it was his gift to know crowd psychology, and to feel the heat of the Pentecostal conflagration that scorched his audience. He called for a rousing revival hymn from his singers, and stepped down to wade among the hallelujah-shouting Negro soldiers to Alice Akana. And ere the excitement began to ebb, nine-tenths of his congregation and all his converts were down on their knees and praying and shouting aloud an immensity of contriteness and sin. Word came via telephone almost simultaneously to the Pacific and University clubs that at last Alice was telling her soul in a meeting. And by private machine and taxicab, for the first time, Abel Ayo's revival was invaded by those of caste and place. The first comers beheld the curious sight of Hawaiian, Chinese, and all variegated racial mixture of the smelting pot of Hawaii, men and women fading out and slinking away through the exits of Abel Ayo's tabernacle. But those who were sneaking out were mostly men, while those who remained were avid-faced as they hung on Alice's utterance. Never was a more fearful and damning community narrative enunciated in the entire Pacific, North and South, than that enunciated by Alice Akana, a penitent frine of Honolulu. Huh! The first comers heard her saying, having already disposed of most of the venial sins of the lesser ones of her memory. You think this man, Stephen McKeekow, is the son of Moses McKeekow and Minnie Adling and has a legal right to the $208 he draws down each month from Park Richards Limited for the lease of the fish pond to Bill Kong at Amana? Not so. Stephen McKeekow is not the son of Moses. He is the son of Aaron Kama and Tilly Naoni. He was given as a present as a feeding child to Moses and Minnie by Aaron and Tilly. I know Moses and Minnie and Aaron and Tilly are dead, yet I know and can prove it. Old Mrs. Popo is still alive. I was present when Stephen was born, and in the nighttime when he was two months old, I myself carried him as a present to Moses and Minnie, and Old Mrs. Popo carried the lantern. This secret has been one of my sins. It has kept me from God. Now, I am free of it. Young Archie McKeekow, who collects bills for the gas company and plays baseball in the afternoons and drinks too much gin, should get that $208 the first of each month from Park Richards Limited. He will blow it on gin and a Ford automobile. Stephen is a good man. Archie is no good. Also, he is a liar, and he served two sentences on the reef and was in reform school before that. Yet God demands the truth that Archie would get the money and make a bad use of it. And in such fashion, Alice rambled on through the experiences of her long and full-packed life. And women forgot they were in the tabernacle, and men too, and faces darkened with passion as they learned for the first time the long-buried secrets of their other halves. The lawyers' offices will be crowded tomorrow morning. McIlwain, chief of detectives, paused long enough from storing away useful information to lean and mutter in Colonel Stilton's ear. Colonel Stilton grinned affirmation, although the chief of detectives could not fail to note the ghastliness of the grin. There's a banker in Honolulu, she continued. You all know his name. He is way up, swell society because of his wife. He owns much stock in general plantations and inter-island. McIlwain recognized the growing portrait and forbore to chuckle. His name is Colonel Stilton. Last Christmas Eve, he came to my house with a big aloha, love, and gave me mortgages on my land in Iapio Valley, all canceled for $2,000 worth. Now, why did he have such a big cash aloha for me? I will tell you. and tells he did, throwing the searchlight on ancient business transactions and political deals from which their inception had lurked in the dark. This... Alice concluded the episode, has long been a sin upon my conscience. It kept my heart from God. And Harold Miles was that time president of the Senate. And next week, he bought three town lots at Pearl Harbor and painted his Honolulu house and paid up his back dues in his clubs. Also, the Ramsey home in Honokiki was left by will to the people if the government would keep it up. But if the government, after two years, did not begin to keep it up, then it would go to the Ramsey heirs whom old Ramsey hated like poison. Well, it went to airs all right. Their lawyer was Charlie Middleton, and he had me help fix it with the government men. And their names were six names from both branches of the legislature. Alice recited and added, maybe they all painted their houses after that. For the first time, I have spoken. My heart is much lighter and softer. It has been coated with the armor of house paint against the Lord. And there's Harry Werther, he was in the Senate at that time. Everybody said bad things about him, and he was never re-elected. Yet his house was not painted. He was honest. To this day, his house is not painted, as everybody knows. There is Jim Lokendamper. He has a bad heart. I heard him only last week, right here before you all, tell his soul. He did not tell all his soul, and he lied to God. And I'm not lying to God. It's a big telling. But I'm telling everything. Now Azalea Akeo, standing right over there, is his wife. But Lizzie Lokendamper is his married wife. A long time ago, we had the great aloha for Azalea. You think her uncle, who went to California and died, left her by will that $2,500 she got? Her uncle did not. I know. Her uncle cried broke in California, and Jim Lokendamper sent $80 to California to bury him. Jim Lokendamper had a piece of land in Kohala he got from his mother's aunt, Lizzie, his married wife. Did not know this. So he sold it to the Kohala Ditch Company and waived the $2,500 to Azalea a Here, Lizzie, the married wife, upstood like a fury long thwarted and, in lieu of her husband, already fled, flung herself tooth and nail on Azalea. Wait, Lizzie Lokendamper! "'Alice cried out. "'I have much weight of you on my heart, "'and some house paint, too.' "'And when she had finished her disclosure "'of how Lizzie had painted her house, Azalea was up and raging. "'Wait, Azalea, eh, Cal? "'I shall now lighten my heart about you, "'and it is not house paint. "'Jim always paid that. "'It's your new bathtub and modern plumbing "'that is heavy on me.' "'Much worse about many and sundry "'did Alice Acana have to say. "'Cutting high in business,' "'financial and social life, as well as low. "'None was too high nor too low to escape, "'and not until two in the morning, "'before an entranced audience "'that packed the tabernacle to the doors, "'did she complete her recital "'of the personal and detailed iniquities "'she knew of the community "'in which she had lived intimately all her days. "'Just as she was finishing, she remembered more. "'Huh,' she sniffed. "'I gave last week one lot worth $800 cash market price to able i o to pay running expenses and add up in Peter's books in heaven. Where did I get that lot? You all think Mr. Fleming, Jason, is a good man? He's more crooked than the entrance was to Pearl Locks before the United States government straightened the channel. He has liver disease now, but his sickness is a judgment of God, and he will die crooked. Mr. Fleming, Jason, gave me that lot 22 years ago when its cash market price was $35. Because his aloha for me was big? No. He never had aloha inside of him except for dollars. You listen. Mr. Fleming Jason put a great sin upon me. When Frank Lomiloli was at my house, full of gin, for which gin Mr. Fleming Jason paid me in advance five times over, I got Frank Lomiloli to sign his name to the state paper of his town land for $100. It was worth 600 then. It's worth 20000 now. Maybe you want to know where that town land is. I will tell you and remove it off my heart. It is on King Street, where is now the Come Again Saloon, the Japanese Taxi Cub Company Garage, the Smith & Wilson Plumbing Shop, and the Ambrosia Lee Cream Parlors, with the two more stories Big Addison Lodging House overhead. And it is all wood, and it's always been well painted. Yesterday they started painting it again, but that paint will not stand between me and God there are no more paint pots between me and my path to heaven. The morning and evening papers of the day following held an unholy hush on the greatest news story of years, but Honolulu was half a giggle and half a gas at the whispered reports, not always basely exaggerated, that circulated wherever two Honoluluans chanced to meet. Our mistake, said Colonel Chilton at the club, was that we did not, at the very first, appoint a committee of safety to keep track of Alice's soul. Bob Christie, one of the younger islanders, burst into laughter, so pointed and so loud that the meaning of it was demanded. Oh, nothing much, was his reply, but I heard on my way here that old John Ward had just been run in for drunken and disorderly conduct and for resisting an officer. Now Abel yo, fine-tooth combs the police court. He loves nothing better than soul-snatching a chronic drunkard. Colonel Chilton looked at Lask Finiston and both looked at Gary Wilkinson. He returned to them a similar look. The old beachcomber, Lask Finiston cried. The drunken old reprobate. I'd forgotten he was alive. Wonderful constitution. Never drew a sober breath except when he was shipwrecked. And when I remember him, into every devil tree afloat. He must be going on 80. He isn't far away from it, Bob Christie nodded. Still beachcombs drinks when he gets the price, and keeps all his senses, although he's not spry and has to use glasses when he reads. And his memory is perfect. Now if Abel Ayo catches him, Gary Wilkinson cleared his throat preliminary to speech. Now there's a grand old man, he said, a leftover from a forgotten age. Few of his type remain, a pioneer, a true Kamaina, helpless and in the hands of the police in his old age. We should do something for him in recognition of his yeoman work in Hawaii. His old home, I happen to know, is Sag Harbor. He hasn't seen it for over half a century. Now, why shouldn't he be surprised tomorrow morning by having his fine paid and by being presented with return tickets to Sag Harbor and, say, expenses for a year's trip? I move a committee. I appoint Colonel Chilton, Lask Finiston, and myself. As for chairman, who more appropriate than Lask Finiston who knew the old gentleman so well in the early days. Since there's no objection, I hereby appoint Lask Finiston chairman of the committee for the purpose of raising and donating money to pay the police court fine and the expenses of a year's travel for that noble pioneer, John Ward, in recognition of a lifetime of devotion of energy to the upbuilding of Hawaii. There was no dissent. The committee will now go into secret session, said Lask Finiston, arising and indicating The way to the library. Signed Jack London, Glen Ellen, California, August 30th, 1916.